So you may have remembered last sermon that I had mentioned that uh, it was part of a two-part sermon on Jesus' power over his enemies. And I talked in that first part about Jesus' power over the enemies of demons and the devil. And that was quite obvious in terms of who Jesus' enemies were in that scenario. But you may have been you know, looking ahead in the passage to see what I would be preaching on next, which enemy Jesus would come and slay uh, that is before him. And you might be a little bit puzzled because the next two passages that, talk, that are talked about, the people that Jesus interacts with is a sick woman and then a dying little girl. So you might be a little bit confused. How are, are they the enemies of God? Well, they are not. But what has befallen upon them, or is about to befall upon them, is the enemy of God. You see, the woman is a woman who is plagued by disease, and she has been for 12 years. And this little girl of only 12 years old is about to succumb to death. And so it is these two things, disease and death, that are the next enemies that Jesus is about to take on. Now, you probably agree with me that death is an enemy of God and of mankind, but you may be puzzled that I'm calling disease an enemy. I mean, no one likes sickness and no one likes disease, but is it really a, an enemy of God and man? Well, I would say yes, it is. You see, disease is an intruder upon this world and upon mankind. It was never meant to be there in the first place, but because of sin, it's now entered into the world and it ravages mankind. Every year, disease claims millions of lives. 18 million a year due to heart diseases, 10 million from cancer, 2.5 million from pneumonia, 2 million from neurological diseases, and the list just goes on and on. And even if you know, the disease that comes doesn't kill you, you know, living with a chronic disease can be just as sorrowful. And to see a child struggling through leukemia therapy, to see a young lady lose the ability to have children because of the cancer treatment she's forced to take. You know, to watch a, a parent slowly drift into someone that you don't even recognize anymore because of Alzheimer's disease. See, disease is a, a vicious and a cruel enemy that attacks mankind. And it's also a very familiar enemy, along with death. I mean, all of us here, other than maybe a few of the children, have known people who are or, or know people who are currently struggling with disease and have succumbed to death. It's a reality of the world that we live in. And that might be another question that you're asking as I talk about death and disease being an enemy of Christ that's been overcome. I mean, if Jesus has power over disease and death, if they are his enemies that he has conquered, then why do we still see so much disease and death? I mean, how can I stand up here and, and speak about death being defeated and yet in the same breath say that millions have died in the past year? 
Well, I hope to answer that question and more as we look at our text this morning. So if you're not already there, you can open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 40 to 46. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 46. So Jesus has just gone and he has crushed legion, his demon enemy. And now in verse 40, it says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. Of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years age, and she was dying. And as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him. And she touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, No, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw That she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he said, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one of what happened. And so there are two main points in the sermon this morning. First, we're going to look at Jesus' defeat of disease and the case of the bleeding woman. And then second, we're going to look at Jesus' defeat of death and the case of Jairus' daughter. And as we walk through both, I, I hope to provide with you some application to your own life. You know, how, the, how the truths we read here have really drastic impacts on how we live. But first, I want to quickly explain to you how we should think about statements like, Jesus has defeated disease and death. I mentioned earlier that disease and death are both still a reality in this world. So how can we say that they are defeated? And to help you with this, there's an an important interpretive principle 
to help us understand this and other truths and promises that we read about in Scripture like this. And that's to understand the already not yet fulfillment of God's promises. I'll say that again, the already not yet fulfillment of God's promises. Let me explain. See, there's many promises in the Bible that are both already fulfilled, but also not quite yet fulfilled. Now, these statements seem like they are contradicting one another, but they don't. You can have something fulfilled, but not yet completely fulfilled. Or you can have something fulfilled in a smaller manner with a greater fulfillment that is yet to come. One analogy that I've always used when talking about this is the end of World War II in Europe. I mean, most historians agree that the Allies won the war on D-Day when they stormed the beaches of Normandy and they took back the coast of France. And that allowed them to sweep through the continent and push the Nazis all the way back into Berlin where they eventually surrendered. You see, in that moment, the beginning to the end of the war had come. The Nazis were essentially defeated. And yet, the war still continued on for close to a year. And total victory was not gained until VE Day, which stands for Victory in Europe Day. And so the war was, was won. The decisive battle was won on, on D-Day. But it wasn't until VE Day that this was a true and complete reality. And likewise, in the Bible, there are many things like this. And Jesus says, for example, that the kingdom of God has come. He says, if you see me healing people and casting out demons, you can know that the kingdom of God has come. And yet, we know that the fullness of the kingdom of God has not yet come. And we're called to pray by Jesus, thy kingdom come. Or, think of our very own salvation. I mean, we've received salvation. The Bible talks about how we have been saved. And yet, in 1 Peter 1... Peter says that we are eagerly waiting the coming of our salvation to be revealed in the last time. And so there's this this theme of us in this life now getting a glimpse, a, a taste, a small fulfillment of the promise, but still longing for the full and final fulfillment of that promise. And the same principle then of, of already not yet applies to disease and death as well. I can stand up here and tell you disease and death have been defeated through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection and yet still understand that they will linger around for a little while but will fully and finally be defeated when Christ comes again. It's only a matter of time now before they are completely gone. And so hopefully that, that answers that question I posed in my introduction uh, how Jesus can defeat something like he's defeated Satan, like he's defeated disease and death, but they still remain around in this weakened form awaiting their final fate. And with that, let's, let's now get into our, our passage. The first point is Jesus's power over disease. And this is seen from his somewhat unique encounter with a woman who, who comes up to him from the crowds. Let me read verse 42 and 43 again. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Now, when I read those words, 
the primary emotion that's stirred in my own heart is, is one of pity, one of, of sympathy for this woman. And she has been constantly and continually bleeding for the last 12 years of her life. And in Jewish culture, according to the law, because of her constant bleeding, she would have been in this continual state of uncleanliness, making her somewhat of an outsider, an outcast in society. Leviticus 15 tells us that a woman who has a discharge of blood for many days beyond her menstrual impurity, she will be considered unclean until her discharge ceases. Every bed where she lies, every chair that she sits on will also be considered unclean. And if anyone touches those, they themselves will be unclean. And so not only is this woman then dealing with the pain of her bleeding and the physical consequences of losing blood for 12 straight years, but she's also suffering some severe social consequences. I mean, no one wants to be around this woman or they themselves will be unclean and will have to go through the purification rites and it's, only, and it's not really worth the effort for them to go through that. See, her disease has made her all alone and filled her completely with shame. No one wants to, to be around that woman because of who she is. And she's aware of this. She knows the way people look at her. She knows that she's an outcast because of her disease. And so verse 20, 43 tells us that she goes up, or that, that she's been going to physicians and spending all of her money to try and, and, and rid herself of this, this disease and suffering. But we see, unfortunately, that the physicians are of no help to her. In Mark's gospel, where he recounts this event, he tells us that after seeing the physicians, she was no better, but actually, she grew worse in her disease. These physicians had made empty promises to her that that they knew the cure, they knew the remedy and the treatment that was going to help her. But they'd all failed her and even made her worse. And in doing so, taken all of her money and robbed her of it. And so then what you have there standing in the streets is no ordinary woman. This is a woman who has absolutely zero hope left for her life. She's got no money. Her condition is only getting worse. And she's all alone in her pain. But then, news reaches her that a man who has power to heal the sick is now in town. And she can see in the distance the large crowd starting to form and gather around this man as he starts walking down the street in her direction. Now he looks like he's in a hurry to get somewhere, but she figures that if she can get close enough to Jesus, reach out and touch him, that perhaps the Lord may deliver her. Look at verse 44. And she came up behind him, and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. See, it's that small, seemingly random moment. It's in this small, seemingly random moment that we see the absolute power of Jesus. I mean, all this woman does is simply touch the fringe of his garment as he's passing by, and 12 years of bleeding and damage is wiped away and she's healed. What doctors couldn't fix, Jesus fixes and restores 
in an instant. And Jesus shows his sovereign power over even the worst of diseases. And now there's no magical power in the, the garment of Jesus. Now, as Peter says later, tons of people are like bumping into Jesus as he's walking through the crowd and they're not all immediately being healed of their diseases and infirmities. But it's the fact that this woman reaches out to Jesus in faith and then the Lord sees that and it's the Lord who heals, who heals her. And this is what we see in verses 45 to 48. Jesus is calling out saying, who is it that touched me? Who, who has done this? And then he says to her in verse 48, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now it's interesting that Jesus doesn't just let her leave and go back into the crowds as a healed and healthy woman. He knows that power has left him and instead of just saying, oh wonderful, someone touched me and they were healed, he intentionally wants to search through the crowd and figure out who it is who has been healed. Now why does he do that? Why does he, why does he make, make an effort to do that? Especially when he's on the rush to go and, and help a, a, a little girl who is who is dying. I don't think he asked that question because he doesn't know who touched him. And Jesus is the all-knowing God who searches and knows the minds and hearts of man. And so he in his, his deity knows who it is who has touched him. Instead, what Jesus is doing here, and, and, and by asking this question, is he's giving this woman who has spent her whole life in the shadows, who has spent her whole life hiding, who is, who is an outcast and is full of shame because of who she is, he's giving her a chance to show her faith and to receive honor that he bestows upon her. She doesn't have to hide anymore. Jesus saved her and he publicly wants to honor her and show her the honor that comes to even the most shameful of us when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he calls out for her out of the crowd. And with a holy fear, we see that she emerges from the crowd and she declares to everyone how God has healed her. And everyone is amazed. And Jesus says to her, really the only words that speak life into the hopeless situation she's in. Daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. See, she trusted in the power of Jesus to deliver her from her disease and to give her peace. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Now, what are some applications from this first point that we see here, the power of Jesus over disease? Well, first, that, that very point, that Jesus has power to heal any and every disease. As we established earlier, disease was, was absent in the Garden of Eden. And it's only with the intrusion of man's sin that disease now wreaks havoc in the world. It's become a fierce and cruel enemy as we saw in this woman's life. But we also saw that it's no match for the power of Jesus. Jesus can heal any and every disease no matter how severe it is. And I firmly and fully believe that that is still true today. I mean, I'm convinced that one of the reasons why Jesus came was to begin putting his enemies 
under his feet, and disease being one of his enemies is included in that. Now there's a logical conclusion from that, that I think as the gospel goes forth, we're going to see less and less disease and sickness. Now that's a bold statement, but listen to what, what's said in Matthew 8, verses 16 to 17. It says, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. He took our illnesses, and he bore our diseases. Now Matthew here is quoting Isaiah 53, that famous passage that we all know about Christ's atoning work on the cross where he took our sins and he bore our transgressions. But it seems like Matthew, in quoting this, is also saying that this passage teaches that Jesus also came to take our illnesses and bear our diseases. So spiritual healing, the the restoration of of a dead soul to life is the primary purpose of Christ's coming. That is very clear in the Bible. But I think he also came to bring relief from disease and sickness and physical healing as well. That's why we see such an explosion of of healing during the time of Jesus and the apostles. Because Jesus came to bring healing and victory over disease. Now I'm not, I have no plans to to go around and and start all of these tent healing services and revivals. But I do think that the church today Churches like us that love the Word of God, that preach the Word of God, should be doing more in terms of praying for healing. Like this woman, we ought to reach out in faith to God, and if it is His will, He will heal. And we're told in James chapter 5, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. I don't believe that's just a promise for, you know, the the apostolic age of the church. I believe that's something that we can grab a hold of, that, that that same healing power of Jesus is still active today. Jesus has not lost his desire to heal. I hope that he's not lost his power to heal. And so I think that we need to pray more that God would miraculously heal the diseases and the injuries that we see among us and that plague us. That's the first application. The second application is that this passage shows us that if if we are going to pursue that, that avenue, that faith plays a role in healing. Faith plays a role in healing. Jesus says to the woman, your faith has made you well. And in that verse that I read in James earlier, it says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And so faith plays then a big role in seeing the healing hand of God. And you probably have prayed for the healing of people before in your life. But ask yourself, do you actually believe that God can heal? Or are you simply praying for a sick person because you know that's the right thing that you should do and you feel bad for them. Do you have faith that God can heal? Now, we need to be careful not to take that too far like some do, 
You know, faith plays a role in healing, but faith does not guarantee healing. Sometimes in God's divine wisdom and plan, he chooses not to heal. Even if there are multiple people of faith that are praying earnestly for this healing. I mean, Timothy in the Bible is an example of that for us. And he's having these chronic stomach ailments. And Paul writes him in the letter of 1 Timothy to start taking a little bit of wine to try and help him with his, his disease. Now, I imagine Paul has been praying in faith for healing. I imagine Timothy has been praying in faith that God will heal him, that he went to the elders to anoint him and to pray for him. But God has chosen not to heal Timothy in this time. And so though faith is important to seeing the healing hand of God, we don't assume that if God doesn't heal, it's because of a lack of faith. That might be the case, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. God may be allowing sickness to further glorify himself in some other way that we are not privy to, that we don't know. And so what if that's you? What if you're someone who you live with a chronic disease or injury and you've been praying earnestly in faith, knowing that God does heal, knowing that God desires to heal many times, but he just hasn't answered that prayer. You're still the same, in the same state that you were before. What, what should you do? What, how, how should you look at a passage like this? Well, first, you need to keep praying for healing and keep praying in faith. I mean, as we're going to see in the next section of this passage, God doesn't always work in our timing. God sometimes answers yes to our prayers. God sometimes answers no to our prayers. But sometimes God also answers, not yet, my child. Keep praying. And so keep coming to the Lord in faith, asking him to, to heal you, to restore you. And then as you wait on God, seek contentment in the Lord, knowing that, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, when he's, he's laboring in prayer over the thorn in his flesh, that his grace is sufficient for you and that his power is made perfect in your weakness. And set your hope and joy upon the full and final healing that is promised to us and that is sure and that is coming very soon when we receive our new unblemished and undefiled heavenly bodies that will no more be stricken by sickness or disease. So that's the second point of application. And the final point of application, and I think probably definitely the most important point, is that the healing of this woman's disease is really a picture of the greater healing that Jesus provides for the human soul. Like this woman, the soul is plagued by disease, the fatal and chronic disease of sin. And it leads us to live a miserable life, unclean before God and others. It, it creates in us a, a fullness of guilt and of shame. And it isolates us from our God and our Savior. And just like this woman, we know that something is wrong. And we know that we're guilty. We know that we are unclean. We know that we are full of shame. And so what do we do? We go then to the physicians of the world to try and heal us. But they can do nothing to remove our sin. In fact, they often make it worse. And we go to doctor morality. If I just try my best and I live a good life, if I obey the Ten Commandments and I, and I try to be a good person, my sin 
and my shame will be gone. I'll be, I'll be healed. I'll be saved. But we know that that's not true, that it just leaves us deceived and enslaved to a law that cannot save. Or maybe we go to doctor ceremony. You know, if I just check off a list of ceremonies to do, things to keep, then I'm all set. I'll be healed. If I go to church on Sunday morning, if I confess my sins to the priest, if I say a prayer before my dinner, if I get baptized and faithfully take the Lord's Supper, keep the traditions of the faith, then my sin is going to be gone. But this too is a false hope. You know what the checklist for heaven is? It's complete perfection. And I've got news for all of us. We've all failed on that. Ceremonies won't get you into heaven. Or how about Dr. Cheap Grace? I said the sinner's prayer. So I've got my one-way ticket to the pearly gates. I can now live how I want. I can walk in the desires of the flesh. I can continue on in my sin with no sign of repentance or remorse. But because I said the sinner's prayer, it doesn't matter. I've got my get-out-of-jail-free card. But again, another false remedy for the disease of sin. Cheap grace is no grace at all. Jesus says that on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. Or last, and this one is for the children, so make sure you listen up. Dr. Parents' Faith. I'm a Christian because my parents are Christians. I live my life this way because my parents tell me that this is how I ought to live my life. I don't know Jesus. I don't love Jesus. I just do what I'm supposed to do because it makes my parents very happy. Well, that's not going to save you, children. That's not going to remove your sins. You need to trust in Jesus, not trust in your parents' trust in Jesus. No, the only doctor that can save us from our sin and shame is the great physician, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and died on the cross for our sins and who rose from the grave and now who freely offers you by his grace the forgiveness of sins, the healing for your soul, a new heart and a place of honor if you will come to him in repentance and faith. And so don't miss out on the healing that the Lord Jesus offers you this morning. Now moving on to our second point, and that is Jesus' power over death. And I'm not going to spend too much time on this because I did talk about Jesus' power over death back in, in Luke chapter 7, but I do want to highlight a few things for you from this passage. And the first thing I want to highlight is the cruelty of death, the cruelty of death. And we see in verses 40 to 42 that a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, he approaches Jesus. And the reason that he's desperate enough to approach Jesus is because his only daughter, a little 12-year-old girl, is terribly sick and she's lying there on her deathbed. Now there's few people who can look at a situation like that and not feel, feel sorrow. I mean, we have many 12-year-olds amongst us here in our congregation. For them to be at the point of death is truly a sad thing. And we see the, the cruelty of death here. That death makes no distinctions 
in who he comes after. That he comes for the young and he comes for the old. He comes for the wise and he comes for the simple. He comes for the sick and he also comes for the healthy. He comes for the wicked, but he also comes for the righteous. He can claim lives quickly or he can do it slowly over a number of years. We can try and fight death off. We can try and prolong his victory over us, but when the appointed time comes, we cannot escape his grasp. He's a cruel enemy that's come to all of us as a result of sin. And as he is about to claim here another life, Jairus reaches out to Jesus. I mean, maybe Jesus can stop this. Maybe he can, he can prevent death from biting this young girl and he can heal her. And Jesus, you know, feeling the urgency and desperate plea of Jairus, decides to follow this man to his house. But then all of a sudden, it appears that plans have changed. You know, as Jesus is heading to Jairus' home, he encounters the woman that we just talked about in the section before. And instead of Jesus saying to her, you know, I'm on my way to go and do something that's very urgent and very important. Now he stops and he takes the time to call her out of the crowd and to honor her in front of everyone. And now if you're Jairus, I imagine you're a little bit frustrated by this. I mean, his daughter is on her last legs, moments from death. And now it appears as though Jesus is, is taking his time. And then he gets that news that no parent ever wants to hear. And it overwhelms him. And he's full of disappointment. And we read in verse 49. And while he was still speaking, that is Jesus, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not bother the teacher anymore. See, Jesus was too late. The child has died and there's now nothing that can be done. There was perhaps before just a, a, a glimmer of hope, a little bit of life for Jesus to work with. But death has struck, and it's claimed another soul. But Jairus is forgetting one very important thing. That's no ordinary man who is standing here beside him. See, Jesus overhears his conversation, and he reaches out to Jairus, who I imagine is probably weeping, as he receives this news of the death of his daughter. And Jesus puts his hand on his shoulder and he looks him in the eyes and he says to him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. Now Jairus is probably a little bit confused at this. I mean, Jesus here is, is giving him hope. He's, he's giving him a, a chance to grow his faith and trust in God. But can Jesus really heal and rise from the grave, the dead? Perhaps. And so the men continue on to the house. And when they get there, the, the rituals that occur when someone has died have already taken place. The mourners are there and they are weeping aloud for this dead child. But when Jesus gets there, he says to them in verse 52, do not weep for she's not dead. She is only sleeping. And in response, they, they laugh at him, which we might do if we were in that situation, because 
they've been there. They've, they've seen this dead girl with their very own eyes and they've, they've gone up and they've felt her pulse and they know that there is none. She's very clearly not sleeping. But again, they do not know who it is who stands before them. And Jesus is going to show them very soon what it means to live by faith and not by sight. Look at verse 54 and 55. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. You see, Jesus enters the room, and with those two simple words, Child, arise, he heals this little girl. Death has stolen her away for a while, but Jesus, the God of life, the Word of God who created all things and sustains all things, reverses the course of death and returns her to life. And you can imagine the joy of her parents, their only daughter, who just a moment ago was lying there before them, dead, had been taken down to the grave, now returns to life. See, that's the power of Jesus. Jesus raises the dead to life. Now, what are some applications from this portion of our passage? Well, first, in Jairus' case, we see that trusting in God, as we're called to trust in God, means trusting in God's timing. You see, Jairus was put to the test here. I mean, he trusted God enough to go and, and to reach out to Jesus to come and heal his sick daughter, But does he trust God enough to trust the timing of Jesus? See, God doesn't work on your schedule. He doesn't work on my schedule. And it's not because God is some big meanie. It's because in his divine wisdom, in which he is working all things for good, he sometimes chooses to to operate in different timing than what we might expect or think is best. And trusting God means trusting in that timing, being patient for the Lord to work. And there's no such thing as, as too late to God. Trust that as the, the sovereign Lord who, who sits above time itself is not limited or inhibited by time, that he can do as he pleases no matter the time. And so you might be in some sort of an affliction or hardship today, You might be longing that the Lord would would help you through something and it just seems like he's not listening. It seems like he doesn't care. It seems like he should just do it already, but he won't end it. I don't know why God works in the timing that he does work, but I do know that his timing in all things is perfect and that you can wait on him and that you can trust in him completely to do what is best. And then the second application, and most importantly, rejoice this morning in the victory that Christ has won over death. Rejoice in the victory that Christ has won over death. The raising of this girl from the dead is just a picture of what Christ promises to all who are united with him through faith. See, when Christ rose from the grave on the third day, he showed that he holds the power within his hands, the power over sin and death. As 1 Corinthians 15 says, death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We will still all die one day, unless the Lord comes before that time. But even though we die physically because of Christ, we've been spared from the greater deaths, spiritual death, eternal death in the fires of hell that we deserve for our sins. And so we have no more need to fear death. That's why Jesus can say in John 11, verse 25 to 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus says that even though you're going to die physically, and you are going to die, we still have life because of Christ. And we will never truly die, but live with him for all of eternity in the eternal life that he has purchased for us. And so as death creeps up upon your doorstep, you, know, you can say, you can say along with the Apostle Paul, not that I fear death anymore, but that to live is Christ and to die is gain. The enemy that death used, once used to be has been totally reversed and now is a gain for the Christian that he enters into eternal life with our Lord and Savior. Death is no longer the enemy that he used to be. It's still sad to see death. We shall try to prevent death when we can. But death is no longer the great foe that he once was. Jesus has conquered the grave and death has lost its sting upon us. And one day, we can also rejoice that it will be completely gone. We read in Revelation 20 that Death itself, along with Hades, will be thrown into the lake of fire with Satan and all the other enemies of God. And God will return the world back to that state in the Garden of Eden when we embrace the new heavens and the new earth. And so if you leave with anything from these two sermons that I've preached over the past two weeks, let it be this, that you all worship a king who holds the power over every enemy. Disaster, demons, the devil, disease, death, they're all defeated by Christ. He is the sovereign ruler of this whole world and everything in it and all his enemies are slowly being put to death and placed under his feet. It's like that D-Day analogy. On the cross and in his subsequent resurrection, Jesus has stormed the beaches of his enemies. He's won the victory and he's guaranteed the outcome. And we now live in that small period in between, that, that short time where, where the enemies of God are, are running. They're on their heels. They're, they're fleeing because they know that they have lost. And eventually, VE Day, the day of victory is going to come and Christ will return. And the last enemy that is the enemy of death, will fully and finally be conquered and we shall live with our God forever. And so have joy and hope this morning. No matter what it is you're going through, no matter the enemies that you encounter in your life, you are on the winning side. You are on the winning side. The victory has already been won. And so do not fear. Have faith in God and keep persevering till Christ comes again. Let me pray.